So what y'all just watched there was, as a little kid growing up in the late 80s, my introduction to this story in every bit of its dubbed straight from VHS glory. And I, I always just was fascinated by this, my imagination about the ancient world and what that must have been like to live there, and the fact that God, even then, at a time where it seemed like his people were just at their lowest and just having a really rough time, God is still working. And, and this guy, Daniel, who a lot of us know is the younger guy who got chucked in the lion's den, here he is as an old guy, and God's still working through him, still using him to bring about God's plan. And, you know, it's an interesting story because you've got this finger writing on the wall. It's where we get the phrase uh, that we say, oh, the writing on the wall today. This is where it came from. But Belshazzar is this guy, he's striving for significance. And that's not just a struggle he had, it's a struggle every single one of us have. It's, it's universal. Each, long, each one of us has this longing that we want to be significant. We want to have purpose and value. And we're always going to have a tendency to say, you know, I, I don't want to admit the fact that one day I'm going to die. But when we follow Jesus, we're operating from a very different place because we say, well, he's the one who makes us significant. He's the one who rescues us from death. And so today we're going to be looking at Belshazzar and how he responded to this feeling of insignificance, this striving, because there's three different ways he did that, that he went after it, that we're all prone to do. And we're going to kind of compare that to how God actually asked us to seek out significance. Because, you know, at the end of the day, our significance is always a gift from God. If we found true significance, it comes from him. If we think we found significance outside of him, it's not true significance. So I'm going to pray and we'll get ready to dive in and see what God has for us. So Jesus, um, on this day, I, uh, Father, I, I just I thank you for your word. Um, as Jane recounted this story, Father, as we sang those songs today and just saw your word from all across the Bible, uh, Father, you speak to us. And you do it constantly. Um, the more we will draw near to you, the more you'll draw near to us. And I ask that now, as we look at this, uh, this next little section of the book of Daniel, Father, I, I pray that we'll see it for what it is, an incredible story, but that we won't lose the fact that, you know, this is a piece of your bigger story that we fall into, that you want to take this story and you want to speak and either comfort us or convict us or whatever else you have in mind. So, Father, will you do that now? Holy Spirit, will you be here with us? And would you just uh, let this time be a time that we look back and go, wow. Wow, you really showed us something today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I just want to give props. You know, sometimes you hear somebody that first tells about something or unpacks something. And when Brad and I were looking at the schedule with Craig of who was going to be up which week, Brad said, oh, Mike, you're going to be up this week. You've got to hear this message that a pastor named Tim Keller taught on this. And I listened to this message, and just every two minutes or, or more often, I was like, oh, that's so good. Oh, that's so good. So I feel like I'm privileged now to pass on a lot of what I was given and I learned from him uh, today. And so as we're getting ready to do that, you can flip to Daniel 5, starting in verse 1. Uh, hard copy Bibles are great. Uh, if you want to use your phone, tablet, or your laptop, and you want to pull up um, uh, to insidescc.org and click the Take Sermon Notes, it's all right there, laid out fine. It's kind of a weird day uh, because of the technical difficulties that Brandon alluded to. I could not print my outline, so it's like, hey, I guess I'm teaching from the laptop today. So this is a little different, so bear with me, but uh, we're going to still have a good time. 
So when we zoom in over this, what we're going to be looking at is three things. First, we're going to look at the party that Belshazzar's throwing. Then we're going to look at the party crasher. And then we're going to figure, uh, finish up looking at the finger of God that ended up writing on the wall. So when we look at this, starting in verse 1, it says, King Belshazzar, he gives this great banquet for a thousand of his nobles. He drinks wine with them. He was drinking his wine, gives orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Uh, So they bring him in, verse 4, and they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, and suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. And the king watched the hands as it wrote. His face turned pale. He was frightened that his legs became weak and his legs uh, were, his knees were knocking. So this banquet that Belshazzar dishes out, it is a doozy. Plenty of booze, plenty of guests, plenty of debauchery. And it was pretty common for a king in this culture at this time to bring your wives to a party. That would not be that strange. But he didn't just bring the wives. He also brings the concubines, who are women he's not married to, but that he uh, has around for his pleasure. And when he brings them, and they start describing this, it becomes pretty clear this is pretty much one great big orgy, if we're going to be honest, the word in our culture that would best describe this. And uh, when he does this, it's really crazy. He's creating this environment of sensuality and pleasure because the wives and concubines are there. But then he brings these goblets out that came from the temple in Jerusalem. And this is kind of an act of defiance, kind of him like beating his own chest, like, look at this, the people who used to drink out of these and worship their God, yeah, we defeated them. Their God's not as great as our God's. Belshazzar's saying, look how big and powerful my empire is. And yet, what we've realized over time as we've studied this is, he wasn't really in that spot. He was kind of bluffing because the reality was there was a massive shadow that was being cast over Babylon right now because 50 miles away from the city, one week before that, the Medes and the Persians had defeated the Babylonian troops. And what does that mean? Well, that means that everybody in Babylon was defenseless. They did not have an army to protect them. They were in a very rough spot that they didn't want to be in. And so the question's been asked, well, why then would Belshazzar have this big party? Is it that he's in denial? He's really fearful, but he wants to kind of just play it off and just numb himself? Is it like a political move that he's thinking, well, if they defeated him and they're going to take over in the capital, well, some of my guys might try to murder me uh, in order to get in good with the new leaders, which they ended up doing? Uh, Or is he just being macho and he's just being cocky? Well, the people that are going to come to the city, they are the big, bad Medes and Persians. And when you look at this map, this is the Babylonian Empire. You're going to see Babylon. It's that little thing there. And all the green is the Babylonian Empire. It's pretty big. They've been the big kids on the block. But the Persian Empire comes into play in this next map. They're going to be bigger and greater. See, they're the neighbors just kind of to the east there. And they're going to expand this and sling it all over the ancient world even further and further and further. And we may look at this and think, Belshazzar, what a moron. Why would you throw a party? Why didn't you do something else for your people? Well, the truth is, it's the same as it was back then as it is today, that the closer death gets to us, the more we tend to roll in the sensual pleasures, what we can find that make us feel good, the more we revel in things like silver and gold and wealth that we think we've accumulated and make us great, and uh, the more 
some of us are going to get into a religious frenzy because you notice in the story they were toasting the gods. They're hoping the gods are going to help them out. But it's not just a Christian thing. There's been so many writers that are secular writers who really don't think that highly of the Bible, and they have written about this. One guy, his name's Ernest Becker. He died in the 70s, but it's very prophetic. He, he wrote, and he basically said, if death is the end of all things, then none of us can really live in the face of it. You think about that? If death is the end of all things, nobody can live in the face of it. Because he says, if that's the case, and the human body dying ends human existence, or the sun all of a sudden flaming out ends existence on earth, then is there really any difference between saying, I'm going to choose A over B? Or is there any difference, you know, of saying, well, I'm going to save life, or I'm going to take life, or claim that this thing is better than that thing? There's really not. And typically, across history, the purpose of culture in general, and we all have different cultures that we grow up in, subcultures and things, but typically cultures are all about just trying to stave off and push back that sense of insignificance that we feel, just like Belshazzar, the feeling that we're nothing more than smoke, we're nothing more than dust, that we just, we could be gone in a second. Culture a lot of times just pushes back on that, but God doesn't really work that way. God draws us near to him and says, well, no, life is fragile, but I give you life and I sustain you regardless. And so there's three ways that Belshazzar went and tried to go about uh, dealing with this sense of insignificance as he strove for that. So I'm going to lay these out for you really quick. The first one is the romantic solution. This is why he rolls out the wives and the concubines. This is something in our culture we chase a lot as well. Maybe some of you have tried this one. It's when you find a love object, you find somebody that you're going to love, they're going to love you, and your salvation, your significance is going to be found in that person. If you want to see examples of it, well, turn on the radio, listen to pop songs. Uh, when I was little, I can still remember the song uh, by Aerosmith being on Angel. I think it's from the late 80s, early 90s. But, you know, Steven Tyler's singing way higher than I can, but you're my angel. And then what does he say? Come and save me tonight. And then he repeats it a bunch. Come and save me tonight. It's like you could have just said it once, Stephen. What's going on? But he says this, and he, he's looking to some woman for his salvation, his significance. But the problem we run into really quick and we see this is, how in the world is a human being supposed to function as a godlike being for another person? If they fall short, it's a dry well. So that's one solution. The second solution is this. We maybe go with the creative solution. This is the gold and the silver and the power, you know, the thing that set it apart. Because the truth is, Belshazzar had all that stuff. Most of the people in the room with him didn't have any of that. He was saying, man, I'm, we're so unique. Look at this. I'm leading this kingdom. We're so great. And for a lot of us, we may not have the gold and the silver, but we think, well, I'm going to just make myself so unique. And if I can just make myself different than anybody else, then that's going to kind of be my little picture of immortality. I ran into this myself. I went off to college and I was, uh, you know, kind of like I am now, except I was like 18, 19 years old. I was just goofy and crazy. You know, I, I, uh, I didn't like go party or anything, but if we were just goofing around as guys, yeah, I'll jump off the top bunk into a stack of newspaper that's four feet high. Sure. Yeah, you can make it two feet high. I'll still jump, you know, do this, saying goofy stuff. And people tended to like that. So I gave them more of that. And before long, I realized really quick, I thought, man, this is great. I've kind of carved out this niche for myself. And I realized there's so much more to me than this. I'm not just this crazy guy. I actually, I care deeply about serious stuff. Like, I want to be taken seriously. 
And I had to grapple with that and realize and confess to God, you know, God, I went all in on this and thought that that would get me accepted. And the truth is, I really sold myself short and I let everybody else do that. And I looked for acceptance and significance in that. I realized, you know, nothing that I do could really set me apart and make me better than the other creature. Anything that is going to be significant about me is something outside of myself. You know, so God, when he created me, I had to realize, wow, he created me in his image to do the things he created me to do that he already did. So, oh, so for me, the creative solution and trying to be unique, that fell short just like the romantic solution. The third one, though, this one gets really interesting. The third solution is religion. You notice when they did those toasts with those stolen goblets, what were they doing? They were toasting the gods. And when they toasted the gods, they were, uh, they were trying to basically tell the gods, hey, look at this. And they're trying to get the gods to bail them out is typically what it is. And when we say that religion is the big key here, maybe some of us who grew up in church would say, well, this has to be the right one of the three. This one has to be good. But typically what happens, what is it with, with gods across history? What happens when it's a religion? Usually we have a God that we choose. We say, I'm going to figure out their will. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to last if I can just do enough good in that God's eyes. If I can just do enough good, then I'll be seen as righteous. And then I'm going to be okay. But we realize after time that, well, that, that, that doesn't really work. And a lot of us make the mistake um, we go after, we call them a god, but we make them in our image. We make them an idol. It becomes a means of us trying to control things. And it doesn't work out very well for us. It's interesting because you look at all three of these. Maybe you've tried one, two, three. Maybe you've vacillated back and forth between all of them. But none of them really work great. And that guy I mentioned earlier, Ernest Becker, this is what he said. He, he, talked to, he basically gave a quote talking about parties. He said, modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness or spending time shopping, which is the same thing. <laughs> As modern man's need for heroic dedication is provided less and less by a culture that disbelieves in any moral, spiritual, or social heroism, that same society finds ways to contrive to help him forget. And so he basically says, you're not going to find glory on your own. You can go with all three options. You can go with one option, whatever. But we know as believers that without God, we don't exist. There is not a greater purpose. There is not greater significance. What's interesting is Daniel, he pretty much calls it like it is. He comes into the king and he says, hey, you've said that whoever reads these words and interprets it, you can have all these great rewards. I don't want your rewards. But you can give them to someone else, and I'll tell you what it says. And he reminds Belshazzar, don't you remember just a few generations before you, Nebuchadnezzar, who's been dead for 22 years, what happened to him? Remember, he ended up on his hands and knees eating grass like an ox, and God had to humble him. But then this is what he says, verse 22. He says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, you haven't humbled yourself, Though you knew all of this, instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and you had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, they drank wine from them. And you praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And those, they can't see or hear or understand. 
but you didn't honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all of your ways, and therefore he sent the hand that wrote that inscription. So Daniel's getting to the point, he's talking about part two. We talked about the party, but there's the big party crasher. As soon as the words are up on the wall, what does Belshazzar do? Well, he calls in the experts. They call them the diviners, enchanters, the astrologers. He says, can you interpret these? When they look up on the wall, they're probably like, okay, this is written in Aramaic. It's common language. It's using words that describe like weights, like when you're trying to see how much something's worth. And, but they see the words, they're like, we, we don't know what the heck this means. So they call Daniel. And Daniel, like I said, we knew him as a young guy. He's the old wise guy now. And to some extent, uh, Daniel is probably annoyed, I would imagine, but he comes in and he owns it. And Daniel's response to this king shows us three things I want to touch on real quick. First thing is, you can actually trust God's word. What's so fascinating is when he, when he turns down the rewards, why does he do that? It's because Daniel's not going to take credit for something he shouldn't take credit for. Daniel's saying, well, look, this isn't something that came up because I did this big analysis or I wrote a research paper or I have some great insight. The only reason I can tell you what this means is because God gave it to me and I'm passing it along to you. That's it. I can't take credit for this. And it's, it's fascinating because in our culture, like if some big thing happens, what does CNN do? when they're trying to get the answer to the tough stuff. They call in the experts, you know. For us, it's people that have a PhD, a psychologist, sociologist, political analyst, whatever. For us in our culture, they are kind of our diviners, enchanters, and astrologers, you know. The the Word of God, we know as believers, is where we need to start, but that's not where the world starts. Now, maybe a doubter would say, how dare would you take a modern scientist who looks at facts and compare them to a bunch of people that chase after what I think is just a bunch of superstitions. Why would you do that? Well, because when it comes to culture, what's the same? Culture is going to help you try to deal with significance. And we're after the same thing today, just as yesterday. And no matter how much wisdom you have, worldly wisdom of today or yesterday, it's still going to fall short of God's wisdom. It is not going to get us what we need. There was a famous story that's told about, this is a true story, at Harvard, there was a counseling psychology class, and a prof was giving students this case study, and in this study uh, that Tim Keller talks about, it says that in the case study, there was a young man, and he had grown up with a horrible relationship with his mother, and he hated his mother, and was very embittered about this, but it pretty much ruined every aspect of his life, and all of a sudden, at one point, a student raises a hand and asks a question, hey, Doctor, what would you do, to, what would you tell to that guy to get over uh, the hatred he has for his mother and to forgive her and get over the guilt? And the prof looked back at him and said, well, I got to be honest, if you're talking about how he's going to forgive, the psych department's not going to help you. You got to go to the divinity school. And a bunch of the other students in the room got super defensive, really defensive. They started saying things like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second. You don't need the divinity school. You just need to tell them, hey, dude, every person in the world is mad at their mom about something. That's normal. That's fine. You can get past it. And what you need to do is forgive because it's the right thing to do. And to this prof's credit, he didn't back down because he, he said, you know, the minute that you say that's the right thing to do, what you ought to do, or you say this is good or this is bad, you're out of the realm of science. 
a science, a discipline like psychology can't answer that question. It can, science can tell you what things are, it can describe them, it can give some explanations for why things work, but it can't determine good or bad, it can't determine right or wrong, and it, it, it can't function as this test for um, what you ought to do. Where do we look for that? Well, we look to God. How does God show us what to do and who we're supposed to be? Well, he showed in his word, this is who I am, this is what I did, you're my kids, go do it. So Daniel teaches us, you can trust God's word. And what's really crazy, this is really crazy, for years this story was used as proof that the Bible was a bunch of, of crap that could not be trusted. Because what they said was, they said all of our historical records we have say it was not Belshazzar that was the final ruler of Babylon. It was, it, it was, it was a guy named Nabonidus. There's no record of Belshazzar. You can't trust the Bible. Well, wouldn't you know, they find some cylinders that they dig up that are inscribed with all this writing. And on the cylinders, what did it say? It said, Belshazzar, the son of Nabonidus. Turns out, Nabonidus ruled for about seven years and decided, I'm just going to go off in the desert. I'm not going to deal with this. And my son, Belshazzar, he's going to rule this kingdom. And he put him in charge. And so why did Belshazzar say he could only make Daniel the third highest ruler in the kingdom? Well, it's because who was the real ruler? His daddy, out in the desert. And he was second, and he's going to give him third. And so, man, you can trust God's word. And it's so cool. Even worldly wisdom points us back to that. It's insane. But what's the second thing that Daniel points out? Well, in verse 22, when he starts calling the king to account, what's he call out? He calls out his pride. He calls out his pride. In our own culture, it's so weird because sometimes we look and we're thinking, why don't people get over themselves? You know, in this town, there's 13% of us that are in a church on an average Sunday. You are among the few and the proud who are here saying this is the means of truth. And we maybe go, why are all those people out there? I know some of them have heard about what Jesus did. I know they know that he made this sacrifice and has this great purpose. Why aren't they in on that? Well, a lot of times it's because People get blinded by pride. A lot of us, after we follow Jesus, we still deal with pride, and he keeps convicting us. And in the case of Belshazzar, his pride was this huge, huge problem. And for a lot of us, it's the same thing. Pride is nasty because it's the root of everything our world's dealing with. I mean, worry and guilt, yeah, that's probably somehow a pride problem. You got nationalism and war, tribalism, people button heads, well, that's a pride problem. Racism, boredom cynicism. Pride is at the root of all of this, and Daniel goes after it. He says, you've got to deal with that problem. And so maybe you today are going, okay, yeah, that's the root of my problem. But Daniel points out one more thing. You've got to distinguish what's the difference between religion and faith. What is the difference? Because you've got Belshazzar toasting all of these other gods, and it's a religion that we're like, oh, that, that doesn't look good. That looks, that looks awful. Like, I wouldn't do that. But most of us are operating in a similar way. We don't have a true faith in God. We have religion that says, well, if I can just give God a good record and I can show him I'm going to try real hard and do as much good as I can, you're going to give me a good life. The gospel of Jesus doesn't say that. The gospel of Jesus says, no, God gave us Jesus and Jesus had a good record that I can receive as mine and then I can live in faith, just being so grateful that he's accepted me forever. So you got to know the difference between religion and faith. 
You know, Belshazzar had a shot like Nebuchadnezzar, and he missed it. He swung and missed because he settled for religion. But real faith in the gospel, that's where we need to be steering. So Daniel teaches us these lessons. And this is the last thing. We're going to look this handwriting on the wall. And verse 25 says, this is the inscription, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And he lays out, here's what it means. We said the experts, they didn't know exactly what this meant. They knew what the words meant. They didn't get the interpretation. And it's basically different weights that are written out. And it meant numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. So Belshazzar's reign has been brought up. He's been put on the scale. He didn't have enough. It's out of balance. And he's found wanting, and he's going to be dealt with. Right? So this happens. And as this happens, scale down here real quick. Belshazzar doesn't really have any time to respond He decides, I'm going to try to get in good with the new guy coming in. Maybe I can make peace or be a part of his royal court or spare my life. But his own people get to him and ax him before he can do that. But many, many years later, generations later, Jesus references back to this. In Luke 10, he sends out 72 people. He says, you've seen the stuff I've done. You've seen me preach the kingdom You've seen me heal diseases. You've seen me cast out demons, feeding the hungry. You've even seen me raise the dead. I want you to go do this stuff. They go out, and sure enough, God starts using them. It's incredible. They come back like, this is unbelievable what's happening. And in Luke 11, verse 20, this is what Jesus says. But if I drive out demons by, catch this, the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he references the finger of God. It's the only time Jesus says, the only time in the New Testament, and he's clearly pointing back to that finger that showed up and put the writing on the wall. And what Jesus was saying was, when you go out and you do these things that I give you authority to do in my name, then it is saying, hey world, the writing's on the wall. The kingdom is here. It's coming and you need to get on board with it. This is the ultimate purpose. This is the ultimate significance that you have been looking for. Jesus looks at us as his church and says, the writing is on the wall. Look at yourselves. You are my church. You're my family. You're a community where lives are changed, where people don't have to struggle alone, where they can find significance. They know who they are. They know what they're created to do. All these big questions, they get answered. They're not hurting each other. They're loving each other. They're seeing God change lives in the process. That is hope. So you and I sit here today and we get to be the writing on the wall by the finger of God when we just go and do the things that he tells us to do. So I'm asking you as we wrap this up and in a minute Jess is going to come up. As you look at those different solutions that Belshazzar chased, You know, are you chasing after one of those? Maybe the romantic solution, you're looking to another person for your significance, or maybe it's the creative solution. You know, you're looking at, man, this is how unique I am. I'm going to do great things nobody else has done and trying to rely on that. Or maybe it's religion. You know, maybe religion is where you're at and you realize, wow, I haven't made this about faith at all. It's been about me and my desire for control and what I want to get. It's supposed to be about him and the fact he's in control, and that he's got something for me and the rest of the world that can't compare to anything that I would come up with in my own mind. 
Are there one of those three that you have been striving for significance? And today as your response, you need to say, God, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to look to those anymore. Change my heart. Change my mind. Let me find significance in you. And I'd ask you this. If we say that we're the writing on the wall, that the finger of God is working through the church and what he's calling us to do, when you leave and you live the other 166 hours of this week, are you legible? Can they read you clearly? If people looked at your life, would they go, I can tell there's something different. There, there's a uniqueness. What they are about is not what I'm about. And daggone it, if I'm not intrigued, I want to know more about that. Are you legible? Well, this fall, as Jess comes up, we want to give you a chance that you don't have to do this by yourself. You can reconnect coming out of this weird, funky season of COVID and everything going on in our world. And you can come and you can look at finding a group of people to walk this next season with, to learn from God, to talk about what it means to be the finger on the wall. Because at the end of the day, true significance is always a gift from God. So Jesus, now as Jess gets ready to lay out um, what the rest of the fall is going to look like, I pray, would you not let us chase significance in these places where the world says to chase it? Would you not let us settle for um, the romantic solution? Not let us settle for trying to be unique. Would you not let us settle, God, for just settling for religion when you call us to a relationship and an active faith that is just life-altering? Father, would you transform us? Would you let us walk out of here different people? And would you point the way so that we can land with the group of people that we're supposed to walk this next season with? Father, would you let us just sense the significance that you give us right now in this moment? In your name we pray. Amen.